Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. You've been enjoying this time in Ecclesiastes. Hope you're getting something out of it. It can be a challenging book to read, but we are wrapping it up today. This is a series called Eclipse, because there are many things in this world that eclipse, that darken and get in our way, our vision, our uh, concept of really the full meaning meaning of life in light of eternity, because this is life under the sun, and uh, Solomon takes it from that approach of under the sun without connection or revelation from God, a godless life, the nitty-gritty stuff that we've been talking about. And so he's been on this journey, this big experiment that he's been doing, trying to uh, dive into every avenue of life and uh, left his pure devotion to God. And, of course, um, he has been the one doing the experience as well as he's been the one who's been a part of all the experiments, which is quite interesting. So he's the teacher. We are gleaning from his wisdom Hopefully we've learned a lot in this journey. And so today we're wrapping it up with the fear of the Lord, reverence. Gee, that's the other side of the coin. God is love, but on the other side, well, there's the fear of the Lord. There's the respect, the awe, and the reverence of God. So this is very, very important. This is a huge, huge topic throughout the scriptures, actually. We just don't talk a whole lot about it. But in Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon keeps bringing us back to it. Because in his eyes, he realizes, really, this life, apart from some final judgment, somebody do who has the final word, that it, of course, it's meaningless. But that's not the case. And so I want to start out. Uh, it's interesting because he's, he jumps right into it, like in chapter 5, talking about the fear of the Lord. And then he ends it in chapter 12, the fear of the Lord. So it's like these bookends. Okay? And uh, so I'm going to jump into chapter 5, the first... Uh, from verse 2 through 7, and you're going to find it interesting when he's talking about the fear of the Lord, his focus. We all deal with it. Are you ready? Be not rash with your mouth. (laughs) You're like, oh, of course. The mouth. That's the one thing that James talks about. He puts a whole chapter on the mouth, the tongue. Oh, of course says, nor let your heart, be hasty, your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow, vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not Hey, let your mouth lead, let, oh, no, I better say that right. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one who must be feared. Hmm, be angry with your voice and destroy the work of your hands. How many know that the mouth is a challenge? Right? It's hard to control that little tongue. It gets us in all kinds of trouble. Speaks when it shouldn't and all that stuff. We all deal with that, every one of us. Nobody's 
got a perfect, got it perfect on that one. But it's interesting because he opens up talking about the mouth, the power of the tongue, in a sense, our words. But then at the very center of that, he talks about vows and rash promises. I mean, he puts a big emphasis on this. So we've got to look at this for a moment in light of the fear of the Lord, the respect of God. This sense of deep awe and respect of who God is. The all-wise, all-knowing, all-seeing. It says, be careful what you under, in a sense, under pressure. I think people have done that. Uh, we are under pressure and we want God to do something because we really need God to act. And so we throw out a rash vow or something or uh, uh, people say, oh, I swear to God, or I'll swear on a stack, stack of Bibles to get them through a difficult situation. And then when God comes through, what often happens is the crisis passes and we don't follow through with our vow because maybe that person really didn't mean, mean it in the first place. So he continues to stress the importance of not making rash, foolish, empty promises to God. And he says, why should God be angry at our, your voice or your words? So let's make this really practical. Okay, let's bring it into our living room where we live. All right? Let's talk, first talk about the two vows that are often uttered. There's an inner vow, and there, that's between us and God. And, of course, there's the outer vows, which we make with, to someone else before God. Those are the two most common ones. Now, inner vows are pledges and promises that we make internally to guide our future life decisions. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus warns us, don't make these kind of vows or promises. Often the inner vow is made during a life of pain or when something really bad happens. And so we say, I'll never trust that person again. Or I'll never trust men again. Or I'll never trust women again. Or whatever. I'm just throwing out examples. And we make that inner vow in our hearts. And the danger in that, making the decision like that, is, well, it, it seems um, to protect us. We, like, we want to protect us from that hurt, or we want to protect us by making this rash decision or vow uh, for the short term. And it might for the short term, but I tell you, it, it harms you for the long term. And the reason is, is because the problem with an inner vow is that it takes a certain area of your life that now you want control over, and it removes God's lordship over it. It fences him out. And rather than allowing him to speak into and rule over that area of our life, we may take matters in our own hands, which can be very foolish and harmful to us in the long run, because I will do it this way. Well, if that's ever happened, and believe me, that happens more time than you know, We've all probably been tempted to do something like that. And if that's the case, boy, we need to be quick to repent and to break those strongholds over our lives so we can be free of that inner vow that we've made to try to protect ourselves when ultimately Jesus is the one who protects us. Now, let's look at the outer vow because this is pledges and promises that we make to God with another person. And probably the most common one is a wedding or a marriage. Now, most wedding ceremonies, uh, I would say that, you know, obviously the couple stands before God, in the presence of God, makes a vow to another person and, and makes it to God as well in the presence of many witnesses. Now, sadly, there are many times where these vows are not taken seriously by the bride or groom. Instead of vows, they're more or less just words because they're not really committed followers of Jesus Christ. He's not really Lord over their lives. They've never really walked with him or following him. And therefore, 
Jesus really isn't guiding them in life in any way. So this is really important because let's, let's look, let's have a clear understanding of what love is. Love is sometimes a feeling, but it's always a commitment. That's true love. And if people enter into a, this kind of uh, covenant with God and another person, not really having a clear even understanding of what love is, then often love evaporates quickly. It's absent. Uh, commitment isn't really there. Uh, there's uh, no forgiving that's walked out. The serving or dying to self isn't really there. And the pledges of fidelity really aren't there. They're not lived out. So you see the importance behind vows is the awe and respect and the fear of the Lord. And the Bible speaks, speaks a great deal, again, about fearing the Lord. And Solomon does the same thing in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Where, when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear, he says. So be wise to really remind ourselves that one day we're all going to stand before God as his sons and daughters. But it's also true that you and I are standing before him right now, right now, as we live our lives. He sees all and he knows all. And that's something we need to often remind ourselves of. I uh, emphasize standing before him as sons and daughters. That's important. Because if you're standing before him as a non-Christian, fearing God means that you're going to face an eternal fate when you stand before him in judgment before a holy, righteous God, who will punish sinners who have rejected salvation through Jesus Christ? They rejected him as their substitute. They rejected him as the one who paid for their sin with his own life. Therefore, if they reject him who absorbed the wrath of God, then we remain standing in the path of the wrath. And the only way outside of the path of the wrath of God as through his son, Jesus Christ, who was judged in our place. But as I said last week, the only way you can enter hell, you have to kick the cross out of the way. Jesus planted it firmly in front of us and said, take my life for yours. But there will be many who refuse to do that. And uh, so this kind of fear is really sobering, hopefully, uh, it would give people a sense of urgency to get right with God, give their life to him by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ who took our sin, their sin, and died in our place. Hopefully that would be a strong motivator. But for the Christian, fearing God really means that we're living a God-centered life that honors him, respects him, and considers God in everything that we do. Because he sees it all. We can't hide anything from him. Now, this kind of fear is not living in terror, you know, of, of being punished, although God does discipline his children because he wants us to succeed in our future, but there's no punishment. Punishment has to do with the past or, you know, whatever you're living under outside of Christ. When you come to him, there is no punishment. And it's kind of like, I guess, it's kind of like a child would respond to a godly father who really loves him. I know fathers aren't perfect, but there are a lot of fathers, many of us even in this room, love your kids and you're doing your best for them and you're trying to live with integrity and all that. And children see that. Children are smart. You can't pass anybody, you can't get anything by them. But 
Those are the kind of dads that kids look up to and they respect and they love and they want to be with them because they feel protected and they, they don't want to do anything that will disappoint them because there's a love there. There's a respect. There's an awe. And that's what the Bible, I believe, is leading us to when it comes to Father God. I just don't want to disappoint you, God. You've been so good to me. And you protect me, and, you, and you're amazing, and I just want my life to honor you. There's that deep sense of awe and reverence. Well, this kind of thinking completely is actually counterculture to the age that we live in, where authority is disrespected at so many levels. I remember my, <clears throat> my, our oldest daughter, Carrie, has been mar married, I think, 14 or 15 years now. I better get that right, but uh, she has a teenager now, and kids... Oh, I t tell them, just stop growing, please. But um, I remember before they were married, her fiancé, we were getting to know their family, and we were at a lunch at a restaurant, and uh, him and his two brothers and his dad were there. They're, him and his two brothers, they're ranchers, and they have this big citrus operation and busy lives. Um, they're not rednecks, all right? They're, they're just, but they're good, wholesome, hardworking believers and dirt in the fingernails, and love Jesus, and, and serve, and work hard, and, and they're just good salt-of-the-earth people. But anyway, they're sitting in a restaurant, and we're with them. Lori and I, we're getting to know the family, and Carrie's there. And, but uh, uh, their mom was running late, and when she came into the, into the restaurant, up to the table, immediately, all three boys quickly pulled their chairs out and stood up. And then they sat back down as a show of respect. I was just sitting there going, what did I just see? I don't think I've ever seen that before. That was so beautiful. It was so powerful. It was so honoring. I thought, wow. My, has, where has our culture gone? Where, what has happened to society? What a display of honor and reverence. And, and that was something they always did. And I always witnessed from that day forward. I was just blown away by it. I thought, wow, so good. But now rebellion against God and godly authority is not only tolerated, it's actually celebrated. It's kind of behavior and dysfunctions everywhere in families and everything else. But Solomon jumps into chapters 5 and 6, and he presses on the vanity of wealth and honor in light of the fear of God. Now, the fear of the Lord guards us from discontentment and envy especially. Those are two things, man, they're like gas in a match that you don't want to put together, discontent and envy. They're dangerous when they're combined, deadly. Discontent, discontent happens when you are not satisfied with the life that you have. And that's not always bad if, uh, you won't, if it deals with a marriage or a job that will make you hopefully want to work harder to improve it. But discontent is always bad. It's a bad thing when it's accompanied by envy. Envy is what happens when we start to covet somebody else's life, a life that you are not designed to have by God or intended to have. Now, the age in which we live in is, there. I tell you, there's more intense opportunity for discontentment and envy any time in history, <clears throat> because every day we are bombarded by advertisements uh, that try to, uh, that seek to make us feel discontented so that we'll spend more money. Every day we're bombarded by social media where people share everything from the house they live in, to the clothes they wear, to the car they drive, to the food that they eat, to the surgeries they had, to the vacations they're on. We're just, it's just a barrage. Let me tell you, if King Solomon was living today, he would dominate social media with all these 
photos of his massive female entourage and his palaces, right, and his uh, gold and silver piled up along with his exotic animals and all his chariots and horses, and it would be everywhere. He had everything, but he was envied by no one. And yet he was discontented. And this is, this is what we find that in, this, in this book, is that um, wealth is a, externally is not going to bring peace internally. Just not going to do it. And so he jumps into this, verse 1 and 2, chapter 6, says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavily on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. So Ecclesiastes, and we've seen this as we've been walking through this, it's painfully... Uh, and continually reminds us that prosperity is not always good and that adversity is not always a bad thing. It's the fear and respect and reverence of the Lord that keeps our hearts in check. Godliness with contentment truly is great gain. How many uh, miserable celebrities are, are far above the ladder of success than we would ever be, and yet there's no fear or regard in their life. We hear about them on the tabloid televisions and people talk about them and obsess over them. And then you hear they're getting a divorce or they're entering rehab or they're depressed or they're taking their own lives. Let me tell you, living a humble life before God, honoring him in all of our ways, is, is so much, it's such a better option than a famed, luxurious life that is just crushed without God. Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, this is what's interesting. We're going to spend just a few moments in chapter 7 because in light of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he drops nuggets of wisdom throughout that chapter. I'm just going to dive into a few of them, I believe, that will personally apply to our life and we'll find interesting. They're kind of fun. Now, the Bible talks about two kinds of people, right? The wise and the foolish. Of course, society is trying to erase the line that divides the two. Wants to blend everything together. But there is a distinction, and we'd be wise to get foolishness out of our lives. But the first one, chapter 7, verse 1, he says, A good name is better than a precious ointment. What does that mean? Well, if you put on perfume or cologne and walk into a room, you're going to kind of fill that room a little bit with a, a good smell, a good sense. People come in, they'll kind of go, hmm, that smells good. Somebody's wearing something really good in here. <clears throat> well, you compare that to your good reputation. A good reputation will go before you like an aroma of our character. You ever seen those old westerns where the guy walks into the room and he goes, I smell a skunk. He knows there's a sidewinder in there and he's going to find our Because he's putting off an aroma through his character, bad character. You know, our character is put off something over time. Only uh, our reputation can be built over time, but I tell you what, it could be lost at any time really quickly. Look, look at the next one, and he goes on to part B of that same verse. He says, and the day of death, then the day of birth. Day of death? Really? In other words, it's, it, you could waste your life one day or one hour at a time, <clears throat> so it's really wise to start with the end in mind to make life count with those you love and those you care about. 
so you finish well. That's a pretty good advice. Then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house feasting. Really? It's better to go mourning? In other words, look, in our culture, we celebrate our wins publicly, but we mourn our losses privately. And often, this could lead to isolation and depression. Now, in our, our culture, that could, that could be dangerous. What he's saying here is, look, mourning's a good thing. Uh, the process that God gave us to pass through the pain and loss of life is an emotion called mourning that you need to embrace and be all in so that you can cycle through it and get to the other side. That's a gift from God. It's part of life. Verse 5, he goes on to say, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than hear the song of fools. What? Hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools? Well, he's reminding us of something here, that there's both the wise, foolish people that love to give us advice. And happy to tell us what they think. So when you're going through life, make sure you have one ear closed to the fool and one ear always open to the wise. And may the Holy Spirit give us the fear of the Lord and discernment so we can help filter out the fool's advice and glean from the wise. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 8 and he says this, Better is the end of a thing than is beginning. And it's beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What is that all about? Well, the proud person starts out really good, but a patient person has a good finish. In other words, put it this way. Uh, a parent that still has a child in the womb is the perfect parent. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, get, we, got, we, get, we know it's going down. Right? We've read the books. We've already talked about it. We're not doing this. We're going to do this, and we're going to do this, 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 and it's going to be great. So you're the perfect parent. But it's really the end that counts. Wise people know that in the middle, look, there's going to be some difficulty, some sin, some mistakes. There's going to be some consequences. But with wisdom and by God's grace, we can navigate to the end where there's really something to show for it. It's like the young boxers. You ever see those young boxers, they get in the ring and they're all showing off and they're shuffling their feet and they're swinging and they're making faces and, and the other guy kind of looks at them, walks over and takes two or three punches and knocks them out. You're like, yes. If you do something, you don't have to say anything, right? Because the results were going to speak for themselves. That's kind of what he's saying here. Look at verse 10. You ready for one more? Then we'll go on. Um, it says, uh, why were the former days better than these? Those days back there, oh, they were so much better than, well, you know when you're trying to drive, learn how to drive a car, the rule, the first rule you learn is keep your eyes on the road. Look ahead. You can't be looking over your shoulder, look behind you, be distracted, looking on your rear mirror all the time. You're going to crash. You got to look, keep your eyes on the road. You ever do that, get parents, and you're teaching your kids, will you, will you keep your eyes on the road? Quit looking. It's pretty important. That's true. What's true physically is also true spiritually. You cannot move forward if you're always looking back in life. It's like Lot's wife. She turned to a pillar of salt when she was looking back while she was leaving a godless culture. And this is why Jesus said life with God is like 
plowing a field. You cannot plow a straight line when you're always looking back. In other words, we could look, we could be so fix, fixated on the good old days that we never move forward into these great new days that God has for us. We can be so fixed on our past mistakes and obsessing over what we did wrong that, that we never move forward into all the fresh starts that God has for us. Look, that's why we got giant windshield and a tiny rearview mirror. Your gaze should be ahead. And then he moves on in chapter 8, and he dives right back into the fear of the Lord, right in the middle of the chapter. And basically what he goes into, he says, look, we got to trust God who rules everything. He rules all. And God alone has all authority. He has all control, every, everyone and everything. And he addresses uh, this life um, where people use their power to hurt and harm other people. He includes people uh, that are sitting on their thrones, in a sense, ruling over families, over churches, over uh, courtrooms, over businesses, over governments. I mean, he just throws it out there. One day, though, he says that, look, every throne will be gone forever, except one throne. One throne that's already established, and it will continue to remain. And sitting on that throne is our amazing, powerful, loving, glorious, rising, risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus, Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, before all judges out there, the one true judge who sees all, knows all, will reward wickedness for what wickedness should be rewarded with. And uh, this includes all those who are in power and all those who are under power. Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 14, he focuses again on keeping our heads in this whole journey that we're on. Do our best to pursue justice in life by seeking it in just ways, trusting our just, our just God, um, do our part, and, and know that he's doing his part one day either in our next life, but even now at times. Let's read verse 10 through 14. We talked a little bit about this last week, but he reflects on it one more time. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. Talking about evil people. He goes to their funerals. They used to go in and out in the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. And they're honored for things. You know, they're wicked, but they're glossing it over. He says, this is all vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, as the evil people seem to live forever. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. This is all vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. <clears throat> okay. Obviously, this world is filled with injustice. We get that. And <clears throat> you may not be really passionate about injustice until it hits your life or hits somebody you love. Then all of a sudden, you are extremely frustrated or you feel powerless. And if we look at life, we just kind of pop our heads up and kind of survey what's going on around us. All you got to do is watch the news for about five minutes and you get it. Uh, you'll see a lot of what Solomon saw in his day, what he's talking about. 
Wicked people get these big funerals. People stand up and laud over them and talk about them and gloss over all their wickedness and their bad character. It's all ignored. Evil, corrupt people, you know, leaders, they get praised, he says. Criminals get away with their crimes, which encourages other criminals not to stop doing their crimes and just commit more crimes. Sometimes the most evil people, he says, live the longest. Make matters worse, sometimes good people are vilified and bad people are vindicated. We get it. We see that. He says this is meaningless. I tell you, I got to admit, there are billionaires today, and you know who some of them are. They spend their wealth, their time, and their influence to continue to pursue and tear down the American spirit and erode Judeo-Christian values. You see it all the time. I see it. It drives me nuts. I don't know how these people keep living. Some of them are really old. But that's their whole aim in life. One day they will have to stand before God and answer for that. But it's frustrating. When you watch it, you're going, no! But that's what they do. Evil people prosper, he says. They get rich, live long. Doesn't encourage those who are bent on evil not to live that way. So Solomon says the key to keeping your head on straight and your heart right is to fear God. The difference between an ungodly life and a godly life is to remember and not forget God in everything that we do. Pretty good advice. God's justice may be delayed as he waits for the sinner to repent because he's not willing that any should perish. Let me tell you, he is very gracious, more patient than we are. But Judgment will not be denied if they don't repent. And those who persist in sin without ever turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, they're not going to get away with anything. They're not. The reality is, and it's all through Scripture, that they're just stacking up everything for a brutal sentencing at the end in an eternal hell. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But that's the truth. The, the tr look, this theme of fearing God is so crucial for us to understand that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon just keeps bringing us back to it. Roughly five times he does this. He returns to this theme. And the two most major occasions is right here in chapter 8 and then in chapter 12 at the end. And the point is that life under the sun, apart from God, right, uh, it, it makes no sense really if there is not a final judgment before God and all the people. Otherwise, what's the use? However, if there is a final and eternal sentencing, then the fear of God enters into this life right now. And then we are urged to consider everything that we do in light of one day there'll be a court with Jesus Christ in heaven. I could use the analogy right now if there were no police or no attorneys or no judges or anything like that, then you wouldn't have to worry about them watching you and catching you in a crime and hauling you into court and being sentenced. We wouldn't have to worry about that stuff. But the Bible portrays, portrays Jesus as this sheriff who's going to come riding into town on a white horse. He's going to come riding into, the, into our world. And he's going to bring an end to wickedness. And on that day, Jesus is going to, he's going to round up all the rebels and have them drug into his court. And he will preside over them on a white throne. Very clear in Revelation. Many will be sentenced to an eternal prison of hell. It's tragic. 
Justice will come through Jesus Christ. It comes through his cross where he died at our place as our substitute for our sin. Or it comes at the white throne and we are the ones who die in our place for our sin because we refused to accept the ultimate sacrifice and substitute Jesus Christ. And instead we remain under judgment. You wonder why in the world would anybody do that? God is so good. Jesus is so amazing and loving and powerful that he gave his own life so no one would have to go to that place. Hmm. The human will is powerful. God will never violate the strongest thing on this earth, the human will. He waits for them to choose him. Well, either way, justice is going to come. And those who deny this will be tragically sorry when the sheriff rides into town, let me tell you. The wise person who fears and respects God understands that he is the ultimate judge and that he will carry out eternal sentencing and the fool is the one who denies that. That's why the Bible says the fool, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Well, during this life where injustice occurs, it looks like the, the fool is correct often. Um, that's only an illusion. And one day, they will have a head-on collision at the white throne of cross, at, at the, the judgment seat, the white throne, Christ. And this leads to a fear of God, which is really reverential. It's, it's emotional, it's practical, it's worshipful, because the end of life really is the beginning of eternal life for all of us here, forever. And that's a long time. In the meantime, he throws something in here right in the middle of chapter 8, verse 15, and encourages us to enjoy life. God has given us all things to enjoy. He says, and I commend joy. For men has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and to be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So until the final judgment, he says, look, I'm going to encourage you. Have some fun. Eat some good food, all right? Uh, drink something tasty and, and make some memories with those you love. And, and never forget that his kingdom is happening through your life because life is filled with injustice and hard work and bummer things happen and you got to work and there's work to get done and you got to work for justice. But don't let injustice rob you of the goodness of God and the, and the joy in the journey and what he's releasing through your life that will make a difference wherever you go. Then you come to this final chapter where he saves the best for last, right? The big concert at the end brings the song we've all been waiting for, right? You have a great dinner, and at the end, he says, here's dessert. So he throws it down. Now, remember, the entire book, we've been exploring the meaning of this meaningless life. And now he gives the bottom line of how to keep our lives aligned with God. We're reminded that not only is Solomon wise, but he was appointed by God as this teacher who spent his entire life researching this meaning of life. Now, this should really encourage us to trust this study that we've been through, really, and listen uh, to this wise counsel. But he says this in verse 11 of chapter 12. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So he says these words are like 
cattle prods, right? He says, I'm going to give you a little pain because it'll keep you from the greater pain. Often that's the case. One of the most important things that we've been pursuing in life should be wisdom. Because this truth has been a megaphone, a mega theme throughout this book. At some point, we need to just simply obey what we know to be true. Jesus said, if you just obey me, it proves you love me. So he says, obey. You know what wisdom is. Wisdom is all this collection of knowledge that you have lived out, applied. That's wisdom. There's a way to do that, godly wisdom. Taking that knowledge and rightly applying it. So here's this final conclusion. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse 13 through 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commands. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You're thinking, I've been waiting 12 chapters for that? He could have said that in the first chapter. Come on, what's the deal here? Well, everything begins and ends and rises and falls and succeeds and fails based on your fear of God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Look, you can have wise counsel, and you can have tons of resources, and you can have all kinds of knowledge, but that is of no help to a person who does not fear God. To fear God is just that, to live with this constant, deep belief that God sees all, and he knows all, and that we will give an account for him. Therefore, we reverence him. All the worship team, come on out. Now, your life and my life actually is really driven by fear. Two kinds of fear. It's either the awe and respect and reverence of God, or it's the fear of man. What do people think? That's really it. It's not whether you're going to fear, it's who you fear. The fear of the Lord is to consider God above everything and everybody else. To fear the Lord is to do what is right in God's eyes, even if it means that the outcome will not be in your best interest. That's the fear of the Lord. The, the default is then that if we do not fear the Lord, then we fear someone else instead. This is why Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man. What does that mean? It means, well, the fear of people is a dangerous trap. To fear people is to hold a person, a group, or anybody else above everyone and everything else. To fear people is to do what other people want you to do, demand you to do, pressure you to do, even if it's not what God wants you to do. And if that's the case, then what we end up doing is we start placing, replacing God with people. Boy, then you're in a real bad spot. Because nobody can replace God. Because then we're not having this sense of biblically guided fear of the Lord. Then we submit our lives to everybody else around us. 
and become what they want us to become. For our youth, we call it peer pressure. For our adults, we call it people-pleasing or codependency. You know, we could spend our life conforming to the expectations of other people, becoming, and so doing, becoming what they want us to become. Or we can live our lives in awe and respect and fear of the Lord and become who he's created us to become. People want carbon copies. God says, no, you're unique. Follow me, fear me, reverence me, and all that you do, and there'll be such glory released through your life because you have placed nobody else above me. Wow. Can you get a vision of that? What that's like? The following Jesus and reverencing him in every area of our life. And as we do that, his full potential becomes into our life and is released. Nothing can stop that. And you're serving the living God who has your best interests in mind, created you on purpose with a purpose for a purpose. And he's very passionate about that being released in your life. But it only happens when we find this place of ongoing awe and respect and reverence before a holy God. So on one side, yes, God is love, but on the other side, hmm, the fear of the Lord. It protects us, guides us, shields us, covers us. He becomes our place of immunity, becomes everything to us in that place. Let's stand together. Jesus. Let's take a moment and just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I know this can be a heavy word. But Lord, it is your word. It's the holy scriptures. It's the power of your truth that has shaping power in our life. And I pray this morning we would consider what is being said through the wisdom of your word. For your word says, Jesus, you said it from your own heart, your own mouth. You said, uh, blessed is he who does my word. I will liken him unto a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Lord, that's what we want. We want the fear of the Lord's beginning of wisdom, and we want to build our house on the rock. We would walk this out, live this out, for we stand before you, Jesus, where nothing goes unnoticed. But we're so grateful that we stand in that place as sons and daughters. No fear of judgment, but we covet and long for the life and the power and the goodness of God on our lives flowing through us. So we live in that place of reverence before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app.